0: and welcome to the LB School Podcast. I'm Christy Michelle, the School and Library Coordinator, and today I have the pleasure of speaking to Christiane M. Andrews, author of Spindlefish and Stars, which is about a young girl, Chloe, who is very many things, but still has a lot to discover about herself and her family. It hit shelves on September 22nd. Christiane, thank you so much for being with us today.
1: Oh, thank you so much for having me. I'm really glad to be here.
0: Could you tell us a little bit about yourself? How did you come to writing and what does it mean to you? Why write middle grade fiction?
1: So, uh, as you said, uh, my name is Christiane Andrews and I live in New Hampshire, very (laughs) rural New Hampshire, at the end of a long dirt road with my husband and son. And I've been a teacher for a number of years, both high school and college. As for how I came to writing, Books and literature and writing have always been tremendously important to me. I can't really remember a time when they weren't. But I do remember, though, that in third grade, I uh, had a teacher that really stressed writing. And uh, it was a, a K through eight one room school, which sounded a little like I was raised in the 19th century, but it was really more of a, just a small rural uh, hippie school. <laughs> And um, every day, everyone in the school had to um, do a daily project where we had to write and illustrate a story or a poem, and the teacher also really stressed memorization of poetry, so we were often reciting to each other. And I still, I still have a notebook full of poems that I wrote during that time, and I think that's probably when I really began writing for myself, and I carried that interest all the way through college and graduate school, which is where I also discovered how much I enjoy teaching, and I turned to teaching in order to share my love of literature with students. As for why middle grade, truthfully, though I adored the books I read as a child, I hadn't considered writing for children until I had my son and began reading aloud to him. Both books I loved as a kid, but also books that I was discovering for the first time with him, and I was just so struck with the beauty and craft of these works, and really an epiphany to me (laughs) coming to, to them with my son and recognizing just how transformative children's literature can be, that, you know, these are the books that shape readers, but also just more importantly, they shape human beings, that they're so crucial in developing imagination and empathy and curiosity and the capacity for, you know, deep critical thinking. And I just felt, you know, what an enormous privilege it would be to write for young readers. And I'm really just so grateful to be able to do so.
0: I actually used to work in adult publishing. I worked with a lot of really obscure, like, work in translation and stuff like that. But then when I came to I came over to children's, I started reading middle grade fiction, which I hadn't read in years. And it reminded me how fun reading can be. And like I yeah. enjoyed the books that I enjoyed the books that I read when I was in adult publishing. Like I love those books. I love those authors. I love what they brought to my life. But just reading middle grade literature is so much fun even when things are scary even when you're learning something even when it's like a quote-unquote subject book this the story is still fun and that's something I really appreciate about middle grade literature I think it respects the reader in a way that's different from from other kinds of of literature I guess Mm
1: -hmm. for me too you know as a teacher and because I taught older kids, high school and college, and, you know, obviously I would always have kids that loved books as much as I did, but then there's also kids that, you know, would come to me and say, well, I've I've never actually read for pleasure, I've only ever read what's been assigned, and as you get older, it's harder and harder to, to learn to love reading if you didn't learn to love it as a kid, and so I think that, you know, these middle grade books are just so important, because this is when you know, children really start reading, not just with their parents, but on their own. And so it's so important that these books are there for them that engage them. And like, as you said, that has to be something that they enjoy and love.
0: Yeah. Um, and even as an adult now, like I've been like now in the mo- in the historical moment that we all find ourselves in, mm-hmm. I've been returning to like the, the middle grade literature that I read as a kid because it's just comforting to me. So, yeah. Yeah. Are there any books you read when you were younger that have been formative for you, both in general and more specifically as a writer? What writers do you look up to and always recommend, both past and contemporaries?
1: I was incredibly fortunate to grow up in a house that really valued reading. Uh, my parents always made sure that we had shelves full of books and. You know, it was a special treat to go to the bookstore, and uh, we didn't have a, a television, so we read a lot. Both my parents read aloud to, to me and my sister, and um, you know we, we read on our own as well. So it's hard to pick just um, one or two books that were important to me when there were so many hundreds that meant so much to me from that time, but a couple do stand out a little bit more than others. One is Madeline L'Engle's A Wrinkle in Time. And I absolutely adored this text. And I came to it a few different ways. Um, It was something that my parents read aloud. Um, It was something that I read on my own multiple times. But it was also a book that I listened to on this absolutely phenomenal radio program called The Spider's Web. I think it came out of WGBH in Boston. I'm not positive about that. But uh, we listened to a lot of their shows. They used to read one or two chapters every evening. But this particular dramatization of A Wrinkle in Time was just spectacular. And I think that experience of coming to know a text in so many different ways and learning that each time you approach it, you see different details uh, was really formative for me. And then the other book, or I guess really series of books that stayed with me was uh, Susan Cooper's Dark is Rising sequence. I absolutely loved these books and i remember being riveted by her prose and her imagery and then i came back to it a few years ago reading it again with my son and being just as stunned by you know just how rich and lush her prose was and then also more recently reading her book uh, from just a few years ago ghost talk which you know has these beautiful intertwining stories So I don't know if these two authors were necessarily formative for me as a writer, but I do think I took from them how fantasy can be a really great way to explore really big questions in children's literature, you know, questions of good and evil or of loss and suffering and sorrow, Um, you know, questions about personal responsibility. And sometimes these can hit a little bit too close to home in realistic As for contemporary writers that I recommend (laughs) this is always such a hard question because there's so many amazing books being written right now and I always feel like I'm leaving, you know, a writer's I really admire out. So I think I'll limit myself to a couple books that I have read really recently that struck stuck with me. A quake a Pet, I read just a little while ago and I thought it was absolutely incredible what they did with art and having it become kind of this animate force of justice. Um, I think technically that's shelved under YA, but it seems to me like it's also a really good fit for upper mi- upper middle grade, and really love that book. Um, I was rereading parts of Edward Carey's Heap House series, and I, I'm i so jealous of author-illustrators, and uh, his his writing and his illustrations in particular are, I love the way they work together. So I, I think that's a really fabulous series. And then um, another book actually, and this is this is an adult book I've read recently but it's, I think it's works really well for maybe an advanced middle grade reader is Andrew Kravak's The Bear which just offers this beautiful portrait of a father and daughter kind of at the end of the world. But um, like I said, even though it's for adult readers, the portrayal of the girl and the voice, I think, make it really accessible to younger readers. A couple books uh, on craft, actually, that I think are really worth recommending. And this is an older text, but Jane Yolen. Uh, she's amazing, and she's so prolific. But this is a book of essays of her Touch Magic which is about myth and folklore in children's lit. So I think writers that are interested in that would find uh, her essays on kind of the, the shared vocabulary that myth and folklore allows us to develop is really interesting. And then Robert McFarland's book, Landmarks, which is not about, it's, it's really about place and the language we use to describe place, but he has a whole chapter called Childish. And I think writers who are interested in children's literature would find this particular chapter really fascinating because it talks about how children experience the landscape as this kind of seamless interplay between imagination and reality and how they create their own language to interact with it. So yeah. those are some some books that I I have read recently that I really
0: recommend. Thank you for sharing those titles. Um, I always like asking writers what they're reading and what they have read. This next question is a little bit related, but also a little bit different, and I always love asking it, just because I also like visualizing books. So, imagine a bookshelf. On it is Spindlefish and Stars. What are three other books you would place on the shelf next to it, and why?
1: This is such a hard question, (laughs) and I think I'm going to give you two different answers, because One would be if my shelves were actually organized, which I would love for them to be, and I strive for them to be, but books tend to wander in our house, and so we often end up with, say, poetry next to an atlas or, you know, a book of drama next to a series of essays. So if my shelves were organized, might find Spindlefish and Stars next to Katherine Gilbert Murdoch's Book of Boy. And I'm picking this one of funny how I came across this book. I had actually just sent a Spindle Fission Stars off to my agent after finishing a revision for her, so this is right before it went on submission. And I had gone to um, the bookstore as kind of a way to reward myself and relax. And I was browsing the shelves, and I picked up Book of Boy. And I was flipping through the pages, and it—I just as I opened it, was struck with how similar the atmosphere felt to the book I had just (laughs) finished revising. And so I think that readers who enjoyed the atmosphere of Book of Boy would find it, might also enjoy the atmosphere of Spindlefish and Stars. I think also maybe Kelly Barnhill's The Witch's Boy. I think there are some thematic similarities that readers who enjoy The Witch's Boy might also enjoy in Spindlefish. You know, the text develops around a journey and a boy and a girl developing a friendship and um, also the necessity of aiding their parents. Uh, so there's that. And then the last book I would pick, and this is, I, again, I think it's shelved in young adult rather than middle grade, but uh, David Elliott's Bull, which, like Spindlefish and Stars, is a re envisioning of a myth. David is in verse rather than prose, and he stays a lot more, he's a lot more faithful to the source material than I am, but he is a New Hampshire writer, and I was lucky enough to work with him a few years ago, and he's a great guy, so I would hope he wouldn't mind if Spindlefish and Stars shared some shelf space with him. But because, as I said, books wander in my house, uh, I think he would, would probably end up sandwiched between uh, a few different texts, maybe Eugene Field's and Blink and a Nod, a picture book. Maybe next to a book on Bruegel's paintings or um, a poetry collection by W.H. Auden or maybe Lugakov's Master and Margarita. And that both speaks to kind of the randomness of my bookshelves, but also these are all texts that had little elements of all of these texts had little elements that crept into Spindle, Fish, and Star. So those are also good shelf mates for it. Awesome.
0: I wish I knew how to draw, because then I would draw all the spines of the books together and put them on an actual show.
1: I know, that would be a, a great image.
0: Yeah. So now we're going to talk a little bit more in depth about the actual novel. How did Chloe, her story, and her world come to you? Can you tell us a little bit about your world-building process? Sure.
1: I, I wish I, I had a more elegant story of the book's creation, but um, this is actually kind of how it went. I, um, the word stargazy just kind of popped into my head one day, and I didn't know if it was a real word or, or what, and so I looked it up, and I saw a picture of a stargazy pie, and I don't know if you've ever seen one, but it's, they're really very strange and very beautiful, and the fish heads poke up through the pie crust, and sometimes... The crust is also decorated with these pastry stars. And at the time, I didn't know anything about the pie or the Cornish traditions it's associated with, but I started wondering what it would be like to travel somewhere and be served this pie. And as you know, beautiful as I think it is, I, I think I'm also would be a little bit squeamish with a fish kind of staring <laughs> at me. So I started imagining a journey to an island and really wondering about this idea of the fish looking up at the stars, and it started bumping up against some other books that I had been reading or had recently taught. You know, as I mentioned, Wink and Blink and a Nod, and Gawkup's Master and Margarita, and some poems by Tennyson and Auden. And I didn't set out to re-envision the myths that I was working with, but they, turning to them allowed me to, to tell the story that I wanted tell. So as for world building, I I think the the most the most significant part of that was needing to envision the geography of the island. So having that in my head because of course Chloe can't discover everything about it all at once, even though it is this very limited space. So I needed to have a sense of what was accessible to her and what would be a little bit more challenging for her to find. But then once Chloe arrives on the island, the world itself becomes very limited, and she only brings a very few items with her. So I think while most fantasy has to kind of rein in all of the different imaginative elements that are available to it, I actually had to work with a pretty limited framework. And when I started writing and I had given her these objects, I actually wasn't entirely sure what I was going to have her do with them I kind of had to discover the significance of the objects that she brought with her along with a character and I had to kind of use them to to write my way back out of the book.
0: So what came to you first when when you were writing the book? Did Chloe as a character come to you first? Did the way they spoke? I'm trying to find a way to talk about the book without revealing too much but did sure, Co yeah. come to you first? Um, did the way they did the language come to you first did the tone of the book come to you first like what came to you first was there like a sequence to the way the book developed for you
1: yeah that's a, that's a really good question uh, Chloe definitely came to me very early on sort of in my <laughs> imaginings about the pie so I I had her in my head but I will say that very first time I set out to write this story, I actually set it in the present, and so Chloe, you know, Chloe as a, as a modern character, and I discovered pretty quickly that that wasn't going to work because, you know, when she arrives at the island, the, the world is really stripped of everything that she knows, and too much of the story would have focused on kind of the the loss of our modern conveniences, like the loss of technology and cell phones and and cars and public transportation. So it worked um, much more easily to set it in the past. And what I also found is the moment that I set it in the past, I could experiment, play with language a lot more, you know, the different accents the different characters have. So... You know, although it's based roughly on our historical past, it's not a, it's not historical fiction. There's not, I didn't stay firmly within a, I mean, I I have a general sense of the century that I was working in, but it's sort of the historical veracity didn't matter as much to me as just using that atmosphere.
0: I remember when I first started reading it, and this may be because I just reread that book, Mm. trying to recapture my childhood during these times, I just reread that book a few months ago. (laughs) Diana Wynne-Jones, am I pronouncing her name properly? Um, How's Moving Castle? Mm -hmm. It reminded me a little bit of that. Um, Yeah,
1: I I can see that.
0: um, And I know you said that it didn't, like, it was a formative book for you as, like, a person and a being, but not exactly as a writer. But it did remind me of A Wrinkle in Time, in that Mm. it's a story about a young girl who, like, sets out on adventure. Although she's not as scared. She's not as scared of the world as um, the heroine in A Wrinkle in Time is. But she close sets out on an adventure to go find her father, basically.
1: Yeah, you know, actually, I I think that's actually a really good comparison because although I certainly didn't intend it, but that idea of of going out to search for a family member was, I mean, it's a key underpinning of single-vision stars. And it may very well be, that I... Took that from a wrinkle in time, absolutely. And yeah, and I think you're right too. Um, I, I think Meg Murray and Chloe are pretty different, but Clo may be a bit more self-confident than Meg. But they do have. Um, they, I think they are a little bit similar in temperament.
0: I think they both they both have like little bursts of anger sometimes because they, mm-hmm. they they're like they're both in these situations that they can't control and they don't know they don't immediately know what's going on or what's happening so like they're not they're not the kind of heroines who always have their emotions under control I really yeah, like that absolutely. about Chloe actually yeah so in the novel the old apple-faced woman who takes Chloe in, and I won't say who she is in order to avoid spoilers this woman gives Chloe work to do she gives her carding combs, and all of this was new to me because I don't know anything about spinning. I'm 100% a modern-day girl, and I just go out and, like, get my clothes at a store and then put them on. But um, she, gives, she gives Chloe carding combs that she has to rake through an endless amount of fish to prepare them for spinning. Carrie, who's another character in the book, he's... Um, a kid her own age that Chloe meets on the island. Carrie also has work he does on the island. Could you tell us a bit about the place work holds in a, in Spindlefish and Stars?
1: Yes. This is such an interesting question because I had not really considered it, but you are absolutely right that we don't usually see children at work in books, um, and the, Carrie and Chloe are engaged in quite a lot of work in Spindlefish. And... I think it has a little bit to do with the time period I set it in. You know, a few centuries ago, leisure as we know it, even for kids, would have been much rarer. You know, you know, as you put it, uh, you, you, you yourself don't know carding and spinning because you don't need to, right? You can go to the store and, and pick up a sweater if you want it, but for Chloe and her father, you know, they need to create the things that they need to exist on a daily basis. So even before Chloe comes to the island, we actually see her already engaged in work. She spends a lot of her day in the garden and preparing meals for her and her father because that's what she would have needed to do. And it's not that she necessarily considers it work. It's just kind of part of her daily life. Chloe does get a glimpse of a family that's a little bit different than hers. And they're wealthier, and they live in the city, and they have a servant. So uh, there is, in the text, um, at least a a glimpse of a family that has a bit more freedom and leisure time and time for play. And even on the island, although Chloe is forced into her work, (laughs) she does come to understand that the work that the people are engaged in there is all very selfless. The people who do it don't really benefit from it themselves. And I think that's something that she takes with her, that however we spend our days, it's best if the things that we do, the tasks that we do, are um, at least helpful for, for other people.
0: And what you just said about, at the beginning of your answer, about Clo and work, and about the difference between the world and the time she lives in and the, the time I'm living in, is that it makes you realize how everything that exists, right? Not everything, like not a tree, for example, but everything else that exists, so much of what exists in our worlds are things that are created. Like they don't just, they're not just there. They're like made. People make them. There are people behind everything that that exists, like behind this book. There's you, the writer. There's Lisa, the editor, you know? There's the cover designer. (laughs) And I think it's really cool that it's a way for kids to start thinking about how the things they interact with come into the world.
1: Yeah, and I, I think especially in, you know, our contemporary life, we are really removed from a lot of the things that make their way into our daily lives. You know, we um, we don't necessarily raise the food that we eat, whether it's in a garden or, you know, whether it's animals. Or, and we don't we make the clothes that we wear, but those were... Those were elements of daily life, that type of creation, that type of tending were elements of daily life for such a long time.
0: Yeah, and like the work Chloe does, it's not, at the beginning of the book, and again at the end of the book, I guess, she gardens, like that's something she enjoys doing, but the work Mm -hmm. she does on the island is not easy work. It's not easy in terms of the physicality of it, but it's also not easy in terms of like if you actually think about what she's doing. Like it's like it's really really difficult work that she's doing but it like serves a greater purpose yeah
1: and, and it takes her a while too to, to recognize that greater purpose because for a long time she just thinks it's useless
0: yeah it's just this um, weird thing this old woman is making her do but then then she learns more yeah so a bit more about work And this time about its intersection with gender. So when I was in college, I I was like really into gender studies and stuff. So whenever I read a book, I'm always like, hmm, I wonder how gender is working in this. So when I was reading Spindlefish and Stars, one of the first things that's said about Chloe is that she like dresses like a boy. She wears um, leggings, she wears boots, um, and she has her hair cut very, very short. And I was also thinking about work as I was reading as I was reading the book. And one moment that struck me is when Carrie is showing Chloe how he catches fish. And Chloe says something along the lines of maybe she can become a fisherman too. And Carrie tells her she can't become one because the other fishermen wouldn't allow it. And it made me think of how Chloe doesn't have a mother in her life who passed on who passed on traditionally feminine knowledge like spinning. The person she had in her life was her father who taught her I guess more quote-unquote masculine knowledge. So could you tell us a little bit more about that?
1: Yeah sure. Yeah, I, there, there definitely is a little bit of tension in the novel with traditional gender roles and expectations, at least as they may have been defined several centuries ago. And the moment that you reference uh, where Carrie tells Chloe she can't fish, uh, Chloe does get pretty upset here. She's not allowed to fish, uh, not because she's a girl, uh, but Chloe doesn't understand this at this moment. And she's, she's never been one to care or follow what society expects. Uh, She doesn't care what the villagers think of her necessarily. She does wear a boy's leggings and boots, and she keeps her hair short because she prefers it that way, because it's a lot more practical, and she tramps over half of creation with her father, so she knows that she is as strong and able as anybody. And Carrie telling her here, you know, no, you can't join the fishermen, this is probably the first time she's ever encountered at least what she assumes are gender limitations. It is also true, as you point out, that because she's grown up with her father, she hasn't learned, you know, traditionally, um, skills like carding and weaving and spinning, and I think the text leaves a little bit of room for the readers to decide whether her father does this because he doesn't know these skills himself, He has taught her to sew, so, you know, did he not teach her these skills because he didn't know them, or he may have also not taught them to her because um, he might not have wanted her to follow in her mother's footsteps. You know, traditionally, historically, not not just in the book, but, you know, in real life, these tasks of of weaving and spinning um, have been overlooked and undervalued, and just dismissed as women's work, um, and not seen as art. And so it was really important for me to re-examine them in the text. And you know, they involve so much time and care, and and creativity and artistry. And it was really important for me to to pay respect to you know what has been just dismissed as you know quote unquote women's work, and to to look at them as real art forms.
0: Definitely. I really loved that about the book. And just right before moving on to the next question, just what you said about Chloe and her reaction to Carrie telling her that, you know, she won't be allowed to become a fisherman. Just, I really appreciated how strong her, her sense of self is in the book. Like, even though she's thrown into the situation, she doesn't have her father with her. Um, she doesn't know where her father is or why her father has left her. She never loses, like, a sense of who she is and what she is capable of doing, even when she first sees the sea for the first time. And I love the way that sequence happened, actually, because I can't remember his name, but I remember that his nose looked like um, a cauliflower. (laughs) I read that line. The the (laughs) swineherd? Yes, the swineherd. I remember the cauliflower nose. Um... (laughs) He tells her about the sea, and she's like, never seen the sea, but she hears the word first, and then she imagines it, and then he tells her about it being endless and smelling like salt, and she imagines those things in her head, and then as she's walking through the forest towards the sea, she like, smells it, and it becomes like a reality for her, and then she comes up to the sea, and she actually sees it and experiences it. Um, (laughs) But back to what I was originally saying which is that even when she comes up to the sea and it's this, like, totally new experience for her and she, like, gets on the boat, like, she, she never, like, loses a sense of who she is, I guess. Yeah, I like and
1: I, I, think, um, I think that's probably because of how she's been raised, um, where she and her father have lived these pretty isolated lives, and so that has made her have a really strong sense of self because she hasn't allowed other people to define who she is but at the same time that's you know created also deficiencies in her character where she doesn't necessarily know at least as we first meet her how to really interact with other people and and how to be a good friend.
0: Carrie plays the flute. The apple-faced woman spins and creates a tapestry. Close father paints. Was it important to you to have arts play a central role in the novel? And could you tell us a bit about art as work?
1: Yeah, it was it was hugely important. And I know there's a lot uh, going on in the book with sort of the re- you know, retelling of these myths, but I think the shape of the story definitely came out of my desire to talk about art. There were a few different ideas that I really wanted to examine. Um, one of them was, how art changes the experience of our lives and um, not just how we might be moved by a particular painting or a particular piece of music or a work of literature, but how art asks us to re-examine minute, really insignificant details that we might ordinarily overlook uh, and asks us to to really see them and to recognize their beauty. And I also want to look at how art The process of experiencing art changes our experience of time, our perception of time, and I think that happens in a few ways. You know, certainly there's the idea of the subject, you know, whether it's the subject that's been painted or the subject that's been sculpted or, you know, the subject of a poem, it gains a kind of immortality, it gains a life beyond its own, so I wanted to look at that. And then I also want to look at how art creates connections across time, you know, whether that's... A connection between the artist and, and his or her audience, or whether that's the connection of audience to audience—different, um, you know, different people in different eras perceiving the same thing—I um, thought that was important to explore. And you know, in in Spindlefish and Stars, we we actually see a a myth being retold again and again and again, and we see how it is used over you know, centuries for different reasons. You know, sometimes people tell it because it's a great story of adventure. Um, sometimes people tell it because it offers a moral lesson. Some people tell it because it describes the love between a parent and child, um, or it tells something about the nature of, of loss. And um, I, I did want to look at how, you know, art, um, especially when we return to motifs in art, they speak to a shared human experience you know, art can be used to create community even across different cultures and different centuries. You also asked about art as work. And um, I think, you know, beyond the way that art creates and ties us together, I think it's also kind of paradoxically a very solitary profession. It often requires hours of time alone and often separated from the world that it's trying to capture. And uh, there's a moment in the text where, where Close sees this and recognizes that about, you know, the old woman that here she's locked away creating this work that nobody may ever see. Um, so it, it gives her this new sense of compassion and sympathy for the old woman.
0: The other thing that looking at how art works in the book uh, made me think about is just Sustaining isn't the right word, but I'm going to use it. But just how sustaining the work of art is, like as an artist, it can be solitary, yes, but it's also very different and more satisfying to do.
1: Yeah, yeah, I think that's that's definitely true. And I probably the character that best exemplifies that is um, is close father, because you see how well, and Carrie too, maybe, but um, you see how. Much art defines him. That even when he he can't paint, it it's still still the thing that drives him forward. And it's you know he spends his his life trying to recapture his ability to paint. And then Carrie too, you know, here he is on this island, and his his flute is is really the one thing that he has that is still his own and still allows him to express his, his own experience on this island in, in uh, an artistic way. And it, it also allows him to create connections to, to Chloe too, eventually.
0: Yeah. Um, I really liked when, like, this was in the middle of the book, I think, when Chloe was spinning. This is after she's seen the tapestry, and she, but she's still trying to figure things out. And then she's locked away in the room, spinning. Not spinning, but carting the fish. And then every now and then, Carrie will come and, like, play the flute, and she'll hear it. And as she's working, like, time will flow by differently for her because she'll hear him playing the flute. And then the other people on the island would, would be like, well, we don't need this. This is unnecessary for us. But for Chloe, he was doing that for Chloe and it actually, like, uh, made her life better for the moment that she was listening to, to his music.
1: Yeah, yeah. And that was that was definitely something I wanted to get across in the text you know, again, going back to that idea of how art changes our experience of time, uh, it may slow it down, it may make it pass faster, but it certainly in the moment of experiencing art, our, our, our existence changes just a little bit. Yeah. Um, in that moment, she, just through his playing the flute, she it kind of cements their friendship even even more.
0: Yeah, that moment, like, stuck out to me because I was like, it was like, this is this is their connection, like all the times that they'd spoken to each other before when he brought her down to um, to see the boat for the first time, even afterwards when when she learns about his wings, and I won't say anything more mm-hmm. about that. But when she learns about his wings, it's the moment when he plays the flute and she hears him. that's the moment that really solidified their relationship for me. I was so drawn to how Chloe is always given descriptions. She's a wall jumper, a cheese eater, a father seeker, a turnip grower, a corner skulker, a window breaker, a letter reader, a forest trekker, a smock wearer, a boat climber, and a lot of other things. Could you tell us what else she is and also what the importance of names and naming is? How naming shapes, how it limits, and also how it broadens Chloe and her world and what she's able and allowed to do.
1: Yeah, thanks. This is another really great question. And I think, actually, the best way to answer it is to talk about what Chloe is not. At least at the start of the text, she is not very generous in how she sees others, and her sense of empathy is not very well developed. Um, and so she judges other people pretty harshly and the people who are around her, the villagers, they also are not very empathetic and, you know, they also judge her pretty harshly and I think this is something that, you know, everyone is, struggles with to some degree or another, not making snap judgments, you know, giving people the benefit of the doubt, assuming, you know, people intend kindness. The names that are used around Clo. Um, those epithets come both from how she sees herself. Um, so, for example, um, Forrest Checker, you mentioned, you know, she might think about it when she wants to recall her, her own bravery or to encourage herself to be brave. Um, but they also sometimes come from how others see and judge her. So um, Corner Skulker, you mentioned, That that's more about how others see her. And I think later in the text, we see uh, other people thinking of her as a gutter snipe, which she then picks up. As we already talked about, Chloe is self confident enough that she doesn't necessarily let others' perceptions about her uh, limit her. But it's only later in the text that she's given an opportunity to revisit some of these early interactions uh, where she recognizes her own limitations in how she sees people um, and how she hasn't necessarily seen people uh, as accurately as she thinks she has, um, and that she has overlooked other people's pain and suffering, and that she's often actually also overlooked sometimes when kindness has been offered to her. And so I think one of the things that the text tries to do is to show clothes developing empathy over the course of the text. So even when she loses all of these epithets that have defined her over the course of the text, um, you know, when she's no longer a wall jumper or cheese eater or letter reader. Um, she still has at least this this key quality of empathy that continues to shape her.
0: Going back to, to you as a writer, what like looms more in your head as you're writing? Is it character or is it like plot? Or are they both pretty even for you as you're writing?
1: Oh, that's an interesting question. I think <laughs> I'm gonna say neither, <laughs> because when I was writing, at least *Spindlefish* and *Stars*, I was writing towards images that I had in my head, and then the plot and character came to fit those images. Does that make sense? That does make um, sense. Yeah. Yeah. So I, there were there were a few. Uh, so uh, perhaps more toward plot but it's not as though I had a, a full understanding of how I wanted to work those images into the plot, but I did have this scene in the grotto, for example, very early on as I started, but I didn't know exactly how I was going to get there or what was going to happen when I got there. So I was writing toward that scene, but not necessarily understanding how it functioned either in the development of character or in the development of plot.
0: I do think that makes sense because the book, has this kind of like fairy tale like quality to it, and I think fairy tales are really good at cementing images in our heads. That makes sense.
1: Yeah, I, yeah, and I think um, I think also what's interesting about fairy tales is often character may not be as developed in fairy tales, mm-hmm. and so I think that was actually something I I really had to work at, especially in revisions, because. Because, you know, I definitely did have that idea of, of a retelling of fairy tales and retelling of myths in my head. And so character was pushed to the back and I had to, to bring it out more as, as I revise.
0: Um, and then one last question, which can be a big question, but sometimes it's as easy as I just hope they enjoy it. What do you hope young readers take away from Spindlefish and Stars?
1: Well, I definitely do hope they enjoy it. Um, I you know, I think every author hopes that um, their readers will find a story that carries them away and then stays with them after they've turned the last page. But I guess I also hope that readers take from it um, what Chloe herself does. You know, she's asked to confront a good deal of loss and sorrow in the book, which is not just personal, but she comes to understand as kind of an inescapable part of the human condition. And, you know, the book tries to make clear that as much as we'd like to avoid loss, it's this impermanence that gives life its beauty, um, that we wouldn't really know joy without sorrow. And, you know, for Chloe, this new awareness of the impermanence of life really drives home this idea that our days on Earth are precious, that our time with other people is really precious, um, and that we should use what time we have, and doing whatever kindnesses we can, even if they're small, uh, for the people around us. So, you know, those I hope both of the book has comfort, and maybe maybe can inspire readers in that way.
0: It definitely has comfort in it. Um, And I really like the way it ends with joy. It ends with us seeing... Chloe, and Carrie in moments of joy. We see some of their moments of joy. Listeners, thank you for tuning in. Christiane is on Twitter at at CM underscore underscore Andrews, and we're always on Twitter at at school. Spindlefish and Stars will be in bookstores and libraries on September 22nd, and I do hope you'll pick it up. Until next time!